Well, good evening. Good evening. So, have you had fun? Yeah. You ready to learn a little bit more tonight? Yeah. Ready to pump some neurons and, and start learning some more things, activate that brain? Well, tonight we're going to look at some more things that are really interesting. And also, tonight there's, very, there's something very special at the very end of this that's going to be for the children in here. I have something special. So don't let me forget that. Like, they will let me forget that. So, but that's why I tell them, so I don't forget it. But tonight as we look at this again, uh, having to do with dinosaurs and, and stuff in the Bible and, and things, we're going to look at some more having to do with this. But I want to start off uh, as we, after we pray. I want to go into the book of Genesis and just read uh, one little section here having to do with Genesis and when God, what God is telling us through all this. And instead of looking at a science book and what it's going to say, on, let's, let's go to the author of science and see what he says on it. We're going to look there, and from there we're going to go on and um, explore certain aspects as we get into this. So, you ready? You game? Yes. Let's go to the Lord in prayer first. Father, we, we do come before you, and we thank you. Uh, beautiful day. We thank you for the snow coming down. It was gorgeous. And we thank you. It's not quite as cold either. And we, Lord... We just thank you for the health you've given us, that we can enjoy this place. We, we thank you also for Fort Wilderness, Lord, that it is a place that is not afraid of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of salvation. That, Lord, it's a place where we can come and have fun. Christians, Lord, we have fun. It's not a dry, weary type of life. Lord, you give us fun, and you've created all of these wonderful things so that we can enjoy them, even snow, and we thank you for that. So, Holy Spirit, we ask again that you would teach us tonight, that you would activate our brains and help us to see things clearly. And, Lord, may I make things clearly. Please speak to your children, we ask this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's take a look. Let's go back to the Bible, and let's explore exactly what God is saying on different things. Let's, I mean, that's the source to go through. Notice, you know, we could go to a, a biology book or some other science book made by men, constructed by men, which... It's going to have a lot of problems with it. Or let's go to the Word of God, um, the perfect I am God who gave us all sorts of information. Let's see what he says. So starting in Genesis chapter 1, um, we're going to read from verse 24 to verse 31. And again, I'm using the New Living Translation because we've got a lot of kids in here. It's written on a lower level. It's a good translation. It's a thought-for-thought thought translation. It's not actually translating word by word. It's taking like a whole sentence and putting it, what is God trying to say? So it's a good translation, uh, particularly for children. So let's take a look at what it says here. Then God said, let the earth produce every sort of animal, each producing offspring of the same kind, livestock, small animals that are scurrying along the ground, and wild animals. And that's what happened. God made all sorts of wild animals, livestock, and small animals, each able to produce offspring of the same kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like ourselves. They will reign over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, and all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Stop here for a second. That's the only commandment we have kept. True? 
the only real commandment we have kept. Continuing, fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the, uh, the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for food. And I have given every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky and the small animals that scurry along the ground, everything that has life. And that's what happened. Then God looked over all he had made, and he saw it was very good. And the evening passed, and the morning came, making the sixth day. You notice what God says when it's done? Everything's good. You know what that means? There's no death. There's no death. In Romans chapter 5, it says that Christ came to conquer death because death is the result of sin. Sin entered the world. Sin has not happened yet. Everything is very good. Everything is perfect. Everything is exactly the perfection that the creator God made it. Sin has not entered the world. There is no death. Animal, did you notice what animals are eating? Animals are not eating each other. This guy's not, you know, going over and <laughs> eating him. No, it's not. It's that, Okay, you're done now. Calm down. <laughs> but animals are not eating animals. Did you see that animals are even eating plants? Now, some people have told me, yeah, really? Look at the teeth on a T-Rex. You're going to tell me that eats plants? And if anybody ever asks you that, ask them to, um, this, uh, to look this up. Do you know what a panda bear is? Look at the, at the teeth that a panda bear has. They're sharp, long, sharp teeth. Does anyone in here know what panda bears eat? You know? I'm sorry? Bamboo. Bamboo. They eat plants. Just because animals have big, sharp teeth does not mean they're always meat eaters. And when God created everything, as it says here, they were plant eaters. And even us, we were all vegetarians at the beginning. Because God is saying that he gave all the plants for us to eat. There is no death. Everything is absolutely perfect. There is no sin. There's no death. There is no illness. Everybody has perfect DNA. Everything is absolutely perfect. Sin changed all that. That's where all the problem comes from. And that's why Christ came, as Paul says in the book of Romans, that Christ came to conquer death. Thus, are you understanding what's going on? At the beginning, there were no predator-prey relationships. Because God tells us there are no predator-prey relationships as he's creating. Animals are not eating animals. Animals are eating plants. There is no predator-prey relationship. So when scientists and stuff are trying to tell me that T-Rexes and stuff were eating other animals in the beginning, really, that goes contrary to what God says. And then they'll tell me, well, look at the teeth on that. Oh, yeah? Well, look at the tooth on a, pan a panda bear. Mm-hmm. That's why Christ came, to conquer death. So, as we've established this now, and I'll tell you, that was, 
that was the passage that really swayed me. I used to be a Darwinian evolutionist. I used to teach evolution. Remember, I'm a biology teacher. I used to teach this. I worked as a research, uh, uh, a research assistant. I wrote uh, scientific papers. I was a published scientist and stuff. And I worked in the field of how fish actually evolved. I used to work on this problem. How did fish evolve from one type into another? That's what I used to work on when, as, as, uh, when I worked at Southern Illinois University. And... One of the verses, well, one of the major things that convinced me I was having problems in showing how these fish evolved that doesn't work in quite, quite right with DNA and proteins and stuff I was using, and what ended up happening, someone came to me and asked me a question, do you believe the, the Bible's the inspired word of God? I said, yes, I do believe that. They said, are you a Christian? Yeah, I was raised in Christian. I'm a Christian, yes, I believe Jesus Christ died for me, um, and he is my Lord and Savior. Then would you just answer this question? How do you explain in Romans chapter 5 that... Christ entered the world to defeat death. Because death would be in all these predator-prey relationships. And that's what I used to think, that dinosaur and animals were killing each other. That's contrary to what the Bible says. Christ entered the world to conquer death. And I was struck with that. And now I was like, wow. Romans chapter 5 is saying that, wow. Death is definitely the result of sin. That's what this whole thing is. And it's all because of sin. And so I started really taking into consideration that God's word is really true. Because some people really struggle with this type of thing. You know, look, let's look at what Jesus said about it. You know, some people will say, well, that's in the book of Genesis. We just got done reading. Let, let's go to the New Testament. What does Jesus say about this whole thing of, you know, how man developed and, and how did dinosaurs and, and all this kind of, how did all these animals, what does God say about how man existed? Did he come from all these different cavemen or what? Because Jesus does address the problem. In Mark chapter six, or chapter 10, verse 6, he says, but God made them, he's talking about man and man, man and female, uh, male and female, he says, God made them male and female from the beginning of creation. You know what this is saying? There is no evolution forming how man just sort of develops out of goo and comes up to be a human. Christ is saying that. Christ is saying that. And, of course, God said it in the book of Genesis, too. Now, some people will say to me, well, <laughs> so the Bible says that, big deal. You know, so what? Just a, a week ago, I was asked um, by uh, a mother to meet with her, um, her son, who used to believe in the Bible and no longer does, and asked me if I would meet with him, and I did. Um, he was willing to do it. They didn't force him. He was willing to meet with me, and... So we sat and talked for a couple of hours on this. And we talked a lot about dinosaurs and, and early man and stuff like this. And what ended up happening at the end of it is we, were, we didn't finish. We didn't get very, very far as what we wanted in one day. But he said this to me. He says, as we're putting on our coats to leave, he says, you know, I'm really surprised, Michael, about the way that you approach this. I've had many other people come and try and talk me back into Bible believing. But you did something nobody else did. I said, what's that? You didn't bring your Bible and I didn't. I didn't bring my Bible with me. And he goes, I'm just curious. Because everybody else is beating me over the head with a Bible. Why didn't you bring a Bible to try to convince me stuff on, on this stuff? I said, you don't believe it. If you don't believe in the Bible, why should I bring it and try and tell you things out of the Bible? You don't even believe in the Bible. My first goal is just to get you to think with logic. 
about what you're, what you're saying and stuff. And he says, wow, that's really interesting. Because he did say, you have posed so many questions to me through logic. To be honest, I don't know how to answer you. And that was part of the purpose. I mean, eventually, I hope I keep meeting with him, and then I get him to start seeing that the Bible's real. But to go over, and if you ever come into a situation like this, and you start just beating a person over their head with their Bible, quoting, well, the Bible says this. If they don't believe in the Bible, folks, <laughs> that's, it's not going to work. Go to logic. Logic's pretty, uh, a lot of people who are very scientifically minded like this young man, logic is the way to approach. Then you can get to the Bible. But you've got to get him to start questioning and seeing the problems with his logic. So some people say, big deal, the Bible says this. Well, it is a big deal. Because, first of all, it is impossible for the Bible to contradict true science. Because God, as I said on the first night, God is the author of both. Second, science is highly prone to error. Science is man's interpretation on stuff, and I'll tell you, we are not perfect. Scientists are not perfect. Scientists make errors all the time. I mean, if you've heard some of the things that's going on just in the last few years about Mars, do you know that scientists generally agree that Mars had a global flood? Oh, yeah. They say, oh, there's no doubt about it. Mars has experienced a global flood. We've never even been to Mars. Yet these same scientists say the Earth never had a global flood. Yeah, that's exactly what I say. <laughs> right. We have fossils all over on every cotton-picking continent. From the top of mountains to the bottom of valleys, we find fossils. How do you make a fossil? You drown something in water in wet sediment. That's how you make a fossil. No, there's never been a flood here, but there has been one Mars. What? Science sometimes gets a little goofy. Third, the Bible is the final authority in all matters that it addresses because it's coming directly from God. So if God is saying something in the Bible, it's going to be real. So as we look at this then, we come to this. When has science ever made an error? Really, when has science ever made an error? I get asked this quite frequently when I'm talking to someone like that. Yeah, when did science ever make an error? Well, science makes quite a few errors. Um, let, let's just look at a couple. All right, we'll just, we don't have time to go through weeks in this, so let's just go through a couple of things. Uh, have you ever heard of a fish called the coelacanth? This is a fossil of one. This is a coelacanth, huge fish, they're about six feet long. Um, and we see them from the fossil record. And for many times, for many centuries, scientists said that this was a dinosaur that became extinct, a dinosaur-type fish that became extinct about 70 million years ago. And matter of fact, I've gone back into biology books back around the turn of the century, even into the 1800s where they're talking about this, and you can see the fins, the three-lobed fins on the bottom of this fish, and they said, see, this is one of these transition things where we had a fish going and walking on land, because these fins are obviously uh, able to, to walk on land, and so this was, might have been one of the, the, the type of fishes that, that crawled up out of the water and started walking on land. There's actually books and papers that stated that. Really? And it was extinct 70 million years ago, back when the dinosaurs were living. That's when this thing lived. Well, in the 1930s, it's a fascinating story. If you ever want to read the history of this thing, uh, the coelacanth, go to Google, type in the history, or just look for the history or the discovery of the coelacanth. Because you know today you can go swim with them. Yeah. There's, you can scuba dive. That's, uh, do you see that thing walking around? Even with those fins, 
Science was wrong about the way that they were guessing how this thing from the fossils, they were guessing how it lived. It swims just like an ordinary fish. And they're found off the coast of South Africa and off Madagascar. Science was a little wrong. Or how about this one? This is a, this is a hilarious one. You ever, ever heard of the early human, uh, called like the early caveman, the transitional thing, called Nebraska man? This is hilarious. In the early uh, 1900s, um, a scientist found a tooth. As you can see in this headline here, this is the New York Times, Sunday, September 17, 1922, Nebraska's Ape Man of the Western World. Scientists construct new million-year-old link from tooth found. Yes, you're not misreading that. They found not a skeleton, they found a tooth, one tooth. And these scientists, oh, this has got to be from an early man. So using that tooth, they constructed what they thought the jaws looked like and then what the skull looked like, and then they figured out what the spine would have looked like, and then what the collarbones and the pelvic girdle, the pectoral girdle, the limbs and everything, and they built an entire skeleton on paper showing what this thing looked like. And if you've heard of the Scopes trial, the evolution trial, and the, the scopes. Do you know that this was actually entered as evidence for proof of evolution? The Nebraska. They, go back, read the thing, um, and you'll see it was used as evidence for proof of evolution. Well, <laughs> a couple of years later, <laughs> it was found out to be all wrong. The tooth they found was not a human tooth. It came from an extinct pig. Now, yeah, some of you might be saying, "Well, I." know some guys that are pigs, but no, it's a different type of thing. We're talking about an actual animal pig. Uh, the truth leaked out slowly. This is in the American Museum Novelties, July, or January 6, 1923. Nine authorities cited the objections. In other words, they found this thing. And by 20, 1927, it pretty much was just dismissed as, like, this is a joke. But science taught that. They even used it in a court case. You see some of the problems we have with things like this? Or how about this? Do you know scientists have been saying for a long time, a type of mollusk, if you were in the, the pearl class today, we talked about mollusk, and a type of mollusk, this one here is called a monoplacophorin. And these um, mollusks are basically, we only know about them because of fossils. And they say that they went extinct 500 million years ago. That's a long time. 500 million, it's even older than dinosaurs. So you won't ever see them and stuff like that. Well, <laughs> in 1952, they found some living, not just a some, they found 12 different species of these living off the coast of Costa Rica. Extinct 500 million years ago? I don't think so. But that's what science taught. Mm -hmm. So we run into problems like this. And then, then we get, well, what is this 500 million years, 70 million, where are they getting this? It comes from radioactive dating. And that's not like dating the Hulk. That's a different type of radioactive dating. Um, zoom. That one went right over. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so what is, what's the problem? Is, is radioactive dating accurate? I get asked this frequently. Probably 100 times a year I get asked, is radioactive dating accurate? And um, I have to say it can be. Yes and no. It depends on how it's being used. Um, radioactive dating is based upon a bunch of assumptions. 
We can't test it in a laboratory with a control to see if we're accurate. Where It's all based upon assumptions. We do know that if you take a stone and take a stone and put it in seawater for 100 years, um, it, will uh, it will test uh, uh, really off than what it really is. Environmental conditions make the testing really weird. But it was designed for, and it can be used very accurately, when you have controls to work with it. We use it frequently in archaeology, but they also use it in other ways and without controls. Well, I know, I probably have confused you. What do you mean controls and stuff? So let me illustrate what I'm talking about. Try and explain what this is talking about. Now, radioactive dating, radioactive isotopes have a half-life. We're talking about measuring the half-life. And some people have problems with this because... One reason that they say that the Earth is like 4.5 billion years old is because uranium has a half-life of four, like 4.5 billion years. Uranium is radioactive. You don't want to hold it in your hands and stuff like this. But what happens is over time, it changes into lead. Now, this has led some people to believe this premise. If lead comes from radioactive uranium, and we find lead here, that lead must have been uranium, thus... It must be four and a half million years old. You get how that idea comes? The thing is, you understand right now, they have totally thrown, before they even come to the conclusion, they're throwing the Bible out. They're not even accepting what the Bible says. They're coming up with this premise. Now, how can we test that to see if it's that old? Or if we use this rock, how can we test this rock really and find out how old it is? There's no way really of testing it. The only thing we can use is radioactive dating, but like I said, if you put it in certain environmental conditions, it won't test the same, and it gets messed up. So there's problems with it. But if you use a control to test along with it, like in a science experiment, you have a control, something to compare with that is a regulated thing that you know. So I know I'm confusing you probably more, but let me put it this way. Here I have a piece of pottery, okay, ancient pottery. Now the thing is, this piece of pottery that you see here, this is an oil lamp. And oil lamps like this, now if you're an archaeologist, you look at this thing and you study the style of it, it's made out of clay, and you look at the style of how this thing is put together, and oil lamps can tell you roughly when this is made. So looking at this, this is a first century AD, uh, during the time of Jesus, oil lamp. When Jesus talked about lighting a lamp and putting it, this is what he's talking about, this little thing here, that's how big they were. Now, this is an oil lamp. But we know from the style and using history and comparative and drawings and stuff like this, this style here was made about the time of Christ, first century AD. So we have that. But now we can radioactively test it. We can use carbon-14. Now, if we test this with carbon-14, what we're going to find out, you don't, when you test something with radioactive testing, you don't get one date. You get a series of dates. Some dates are a little bit stronger than others. The, the, the things will show a little stronger affinity to one type of date. And if you date this, it will come out to be uh, one of the dates for carbon-14 is about, um, shows it being around 30 to 60 AD. You know, that's in the first century, is it not? You see what we have done? We could have automatically just started with taking the clay, uh, taking this little clay, dating it, and getting 30 to uh, uh, 60 AD. And then we use a control. Look at the artwork of it. That's a control. What I mean by control, we know this style was done in the first century. That's a control. 
The carbon-14 gives us a date, but we don't know if the date's accurate. But if you compare it with the style of this thing, that's a control. That's what we're talking about. When you use radioactive dating with a control, it can be accurate. This one even has a little bit more of a control because there's a coin on the inside. And if you look at this ancient coin on this one, the coin was actually minted during the reign of Pontius Pilate, who lived during the time of Christ. And so the coin was from 26 to 37 AD. Notice that's in the first century. Notice what the carbon dating said, 30 to 60. This fits in that range. Thus, we have good evidence that that radioactive dating is very accurate. You understand? Now, try and date this rock. What can use a control? It's just a rock. This came out of, the, of uh, Lake Superior. There's no pottery with it. There's no coins attached to it. It's just a rock. We can radioactively date it. The thing is, what do we use as a control? There are no controls. So we get a whole pile of dates. We don't know which one's accurate. So what scientists do, and I'll tell you, because I did the same thing, we come up with an idea of what we want this to be, we test it, and we keep testing it till we finally get the date that we want, and that's what we publish. I know we do it that way because I did it too. So what happens to all the other dates? We don't tell you about that because it's not important to our paper. We want to get published. Publish or perish. Folks, that's how this is done. You know what else is also fascinating, just on a side note? I've never heard of a rock, because there's different ways of radioactive testing. I have never heard of a rock being pulled out of the ground that they use, say, potassium argon testing, which we could do with this. We could do uh, um, helium halo dating, which is another test. Um, Say we could do uh, strontium testing on this. We get another one. Now, each one of these tests will give us a set of dates. And what's fascinating is this. I've never come across a rock that when you test it by different methods, it always lines up to being the same date. Never found one like that. You don't hear about that, but that happens. You would think if the, if the rock was actually 2 million years old, it would show 2 million years old on all these tests. Rocks, they, they, they don't do that. There's always variance. So you can't really get an age. Oh, a piece of pottery, we can. We can take this piece of pottery, and by the way, I'll be totally honest with you. This is a copy. This isn't real. <laughs> this is real. This is from um, outside of Jerusalem in one of the ancient cities. It's a piece of clay pottery. I can see this is the lid. It was a big pot. And you can see on the inside, even where they, the person was using their fingers. I can actually put my fingers in the grooves on here. And you can feel as this was being turned on a wheel. You can actually feel where they were putting their fingers on this broken piece. I got this in a rubbish pile at an archaeological site. But we can take this, carbon date it, because it's clay. We can carbon date it with uh, carbon-14. But we have the style of the pottery, the thickness. You can see a little bit of artwork on the top. You can get an idea of the age of it. This, you can't. That's the problem with all this kind of stuff. Let me show you some other problems with radioactive dating. Now, I don't want to make you laugh too hard, but these are real things. And I, in many cases, I'm going to give you the sites where this comes from. So you can, if you don't believe me, you can verify it yourself. But scientists often get conflicting dates using different radioactive dating methods on the same rock. Like I was just telling you, that does happen frequently if you don't use a control. If you don't use a control. Um, sometimes... Uh, rocks are thought to be much older because they're buried deeper 
And, and the, but the thing is, the date doesn't work like that. Sometimes the older rocks are up on top and the younger rocks are underneath. So it's really weird with the dating thing like this. Um, or a third, often rocks are known to be very young um, because they come from a recent volcano. We can watch a volcano and volcanoes make rocks. And we can watch the rocks actually forming at the volcano. And they take these and they give dates on this. We radioactively date these. And Sometimes the dates, even though the scientists stood there and watched it form, they'll sometimes say the most bizarre things about the age of these as being millions of years old. Yet they saw the thing being made. Let me, let me show you. If you go to uh, Arizona, there's a famous place there called Sunset Crater. Around 900 years ago, we can tell that's when the eruption took place. Yet rocks formed there that came out of that volcanic eruption 900 years ago have been dated to be 210,000 to 230,000 years old. Or how about this one? There's a place in New Zealand uh, 300 years ago, uh, Mount Rangitoto, they, it, it erupted and it made rocks. 300, the rocks are only 300 years old, yet they radioactively date to be 4,485,000 uh, years old. Or you can go down to Hawaii, and uh, there's a volcano there, the Hualalai, or whatever you say, um, 200 years ago erupted, yet some of the rocks that have been taken out of that that have been formed, the rocks are only 200 years old, yet they have been radioactively dated to be one, uh, one, uh, 140 million to 2.96 billion years old when they radioactively dated. Why are they getting such weird dates? There's no controls. That's the problem. How about this? In 1993, several pieces of wood were found entombed um, in a layer of lava in a coal mine in Australia. Parts of the wood were still intact. The wood is here. The lava forms on the outside. Um, various pieces of wood were carbon dated but, uh, to be around 35 to 45,000 years old. Yet the lava enclosing the wood is dating uh, 36.7 to 1.2 million years old. Something's wrong with the dating system here. Um, Oh, wait, wait. Uh, rocks cooled from lava flows known to have occurred in 1949, 1975. Sent to many, state, uh, many labs. They were testing this to see how accurate it was. They didn't tell the labs where they came from or anything, just asked them to test it. And even though the, the rocks were formed in 1949, 1975, they tested them out to be 2.7 million years old to some of them were three and a half million years old. What's wrong with this? Because they don't know. There's no way to test it with controls. That type of radioactive dating is not very accurate, is what I'm telling you. Um, rocks from a cooled lava dome at Mount St. Helens. Some of you adults in here remember when Mount St. Helens blew up. They take rocks from there, and they test them, and using potassium-argon dating, they come out to be millions of years old. Yet, I was still alive when I saw it on television blowing up. Something's wrong with the dating. Living mollusks pulled out of the ocean and dated with carbon-14, found to be 2,300 years old. They're living. They're alive. Really? Freshly killed seal, according to the Antarctic Journal. A freshly killed seal was carbon-dated, having died 1,300 years ago. Yet it died right then. You see, there's sometimes really weird things going on in this carbon dating business. Anybody here have a diamond? I hope some of you ladies have a diamond. I bet you're probably hoping I have a diamond too. If you have diamonds, diamonds are said to be millions of years old. Yet, 
If you test any one of the diamonds in this room, you're going to find carbon-14 in there. The interesting thing is carbon-14's half-life is not even 50,000 years. Yet, you can find carbon-14 in all your diamonds. There shouldn't be any diamonds because they're supposed to be millions of years old. All the carbon-14 should be gone. But they all haven't. Something's wrong. Opal's the same way. Shells from living snails, taking a live snail, taking the shell, carbon dating it, and the lab said in Science, volume, Science the magazine volume uh, 224, this was back in 1984, said that this snail is 2,700 years old. No, it's not. It's only a couple of years old. There's something wrong when you don't have controls and you're trying to test things. This is my favorite. Get this one. One part of a big mammoth, okay, a dead frozen mammoth. And by the way, I'm reading this out of the, the quaternary uh, stratigraphic nomenclature. Um, it's, it's the paper, as you can see here. They tested this mammoth. Now, what they did is they took cells, part of the cells from the back end, and then they took some of the cells from the front end. And this is how it came out. One end ended up being 29,500 years old. The other end was 44,000 years old. Do you see a problem with that? The people who came up with the idea of radioactive dating, that was the Curies. Madame Curie, Pierre Curie. They're the ones who came up with the idea of being able to do it. And they said, this will be a great tool for archaeology, which it is, because you use controls. They also said, without controls, you could be millions of years off. Yet we use this all the time. This is how we date things. But you can see, radioactive dating, if I just take a bone here and I start doing this, and testing it, for one, you can't take a T-Rex bone and find carbon-14. It's supposed to be 68 million years old. There shouldn't be any carbon-14 at all in there. Yet, you, sometimes you find carbon-14 in them. They can't be that old. Something is really wrong in this system. So, I know I'm out of time here, but I just wanted to, to show you just a few little glimpses. I wish we had more time to explain more. I, want, I would love to get more into the, the early humans and all this other stuff. There's, there's fascinating things, but we don't have time. I'm just going to ask you this because I'm out of time. Where are you going to put your trust in? We're coming into a new year. Where are you going to put your trust? In science, which is constantly having to change because it's always making mistakes? Or go to the Word of God. It doesn't change because God is the author of science. Where are you going to put your trust? Where are you going to put your trust? Father, we thank you for this time we've had. And Lord, your spirit will, I hope, continue to teach and speak to the minds of the people, young and old. I thank you for all the people who are in here listening, especially the kids that have been paying such close attention. It just really touches my heart that these children are paying so close attention to all this. And even the one that came up to me last night with his socks showing because he said his shoes, the, uh, his socks were blown off. From the lesson, it amazes me how the children sometimes grasp things easier than us adults. But Lord, we ask that you would just teach us, continue to teach us, and keep us safe. Those who are traveling home tomorrow, Lord, please keep them safe. And I thank you for each one of these families that's here and ask you to bless them. In Jesus' name, amen.